We're in James chapter 5. We're coming to an, uh, an end to this wonderful book. Uh, James is hard-hitting, uh, very, very black and white. He's kind of like John in the, the epistles. But we're in uh, chapter 5, and as I mentioned, James chapter 5, 1 through 6, which we began last week, um, it addressed the wicked rich and those who use their wealth to oppress the righteous. And you say, well, why would James be writing about them? Well, because the group of people that he was writing to was a mixed community. He's writing to a church, but there were people in that church that professed to be believers, but they were not acting like believers. And then there were the true believers that had to deal with the people that were acting like believers or acting like unbelievers, even though they claimed the name of Christ. And so in this first section, one through six, uh, you have him lowering the boom on people and just identifying them and telling them uh, what they're doing and that it's wrong what they're doing. So now, in verses 7 through 12, he's going to address those who are being oppressed. And he turns from the oppressors to the oppressed, and he seeks to comfort the true believers in that mix who were suffering under the unjust treatment of the wealthy who were using their wealth to oppress. So let me read verses 7 through 12 to get us started, and we'll have a word of prayer and get into the sermon. Beginning in verse 7. Therefore, well, the therefore is because of what he just said in 1 through 6. Therefore, I want you believers to be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it, until it gets the early and late rains. You too, be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that yourselves may not be judged. You yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You've heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this book, James, and the instruction that it's given us from the very beginning talking about temptations and how we're to deal with those things and how we can come to you and pray. Father, um, it's so helpful to know that churches, even back in the first century, had problems. Father, churches are not perfect because they're made up of people that are not perfect. And Father, they're also made up of some people who profess to know you who really don't. And so consequently, They don't act in accordance with your word. And these all come together, Father, and cause problems in the church. Yet you do not leave us without instruction and guidance in how to deal with these problems. So we're grateful for that. 
We pray that you'd open the eyes of our understanding today from your word that we'd be able to glean what we need to glean. Let your spirit have freedom in our hearts to impress on us the very thing that our heart needs so that we might strengthen our hearts, even as James advised those at his time. Thank you for hearing our prayers now in Jesus' name. So we're going to talk and break up this short little section between two prescriptions and two prohibitions. It works out very clearly, very easily. And the first two prescriptions are to be patient and to strengthen your hearts. And so being patient, the first prescription, he says, brethren. So he's talking to believers that are in the church that he's writing to. And that's different from verses 1 through 6 because he doesn't use the word brethren once in that whole uh, portion of Scripture. Here he uses it at least four times. And he's calling them to patience, patience toward the very people who were oppressing them. Patience is from a compound word combining long with anger, long anger, to come up with an attitude that is long-tempered. James exhorts his readers to possess a long temper towards people and the people that were oppressing him. Bear the afflictions without murmuring, your injuries without thought of personal revenge against those wicked ones. Matthew Henry, a commentary or a commentator that a lot of us are familiar with, speaks of this patience as a deliberate acquiescence. Listen to this. A deliberate acquiescence in the wisdom and will of God with an eye to a future glorious recompense. So rather than reacting negatively or fleshly or carnally against those oppressors, James says, acquiesce to it and just know that they'll get theirs. God is not asleep. He sees all. He knows all. Now, just think in your mind, can you think of any scripture um, that would be appropriate to that kind of an attitude of heart and will? Can you think of any scripture just off the top of your head? I want you to be thinking about that. Maybe jot it down uh, in your bulletin as you're thinking about it. I'm going to give you a couple because this is not a doctrine that's kind of on the periphery. This is a solid doctrine, a, a sound doctrine, if you will. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your anxiety on him. Why? Because he cares for you. He cares for you. Now, we just came through the so-called pandemic, and um, there's a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety, all of us, and you need to admit that. Those first weeks, you were wondering what on earth is going on. Is this it? (laughs) Was my theology wrong? (laughs) But the truth of the matter is, during that time, I'm sure many of you turned to 1 Peter 5, 7 and reassured your heart, casting your anxiety, putting all those feelings of fear on the Lord, knowing that he cares for us and that he doesn't let anything happen that he's unaware of. How about Psalm 27, verses 13 and 14? That's another text that I went to. I would have despaired unless I had believed. You can just stop right there. (laughs) 
but the rest of the verse is good too. I, had, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. There's much to be said on waiting for the Lord. Psalm 37, 7 through 11 also addresses the same ideas here. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Don't fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Do we have any of those men present today? I mean, is this pertinent to us, possibly? Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. Well, that's a word for us to be careful of. For evildoers will be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. And you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. What a promise. And it's the principle here. I mean... This is speaking of Israel, but the principle we can take because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Psalm 55, 22, last verse. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. That is a promise. You can underline that, circle it, hold on to it, and use it when you become fearful. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. Wow. So this attitude should possess the people that James was writing to who were under oppression because they should be looking for the return of the Lord when everything will be set straight, a time when justice will reign and the wicked will be repaid and we too need to be doing the same thing. You know, all the whole Old Testament up to the birth of Jesus Christ, Israel was doing what? What were they doing that whole time until Christ was born? Waiting for Messiah and looking for him. Now, they missed him except for the remnant. They missed his his coming. But then from the time that he ascended into heaven, Acts 1.8, all the way until his return at the rapture, what is the church supposed to be doing? Waiting for his return. If you kind of take just the time frames, and then he's got like 30 years that he was here, but only three that he really revealed himself as Messiah. Three years. And then he ascends back into heaven, and we've got 2,000 plus years. Seems unfair, doesn't it? There's a lot of waiting here. But the next one's a big one, right? He returns for his church, and we'll meet him in the air to be with him forever. So that's the beginning for us. That's the big step for us. Or if we die, we go into his presence and wait for our resurrected bodies. We'll be with him forever. And then after that rapture period, there's seven years of tribulation, 
in which there's a great turning to the Lord by many people, a number of witnesses, two witnesses, 144,000 witnesses, okay, all bringing in those that God wants to be part of his family. But then at the end of that seven years is 1,000 years, 1,000 years of amazing time where the curse is rolled back and longevity is there and Christ reigns from his throne in Jerusalem as king, King Jesus. He takes back the earth. And at the end of that 1,000 years then, there's a rebellion. There's a rebellion. People rebel against Christ's reign. He puts that down rather rapidly, and then there's a creation of new heavens and new earth. Friends, our future is bright. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So you want to make sure that you are in Christ Jesus. Right? That wasn't even in my notes. Waiting for the Lord until the coming of the Lord. The only way to bear up under such abuse would be for them to set their heart on the coming of the Lord. Do you think the people over in the Ukraine are thinking of Christ's return and waiting for his return with such an anxiousness that they've never had before? They're in duress. They're suffering anxiety. Obviously, their neighbors are dying right before their eyes. Their homes are being bombed. There isn't food. There isn't gas. There isn't the normal things that you have of life. Of course, and the believers would definitely be thinking of the sovereignty of God and of his soon return. The encouragement to look with anticipation on the second coming is a common theme in the New Testament, and it's used by the writers of the New Testament to comfort those who are suffering persecution. The second coming is an incentive to at least seven things. You can mark these down. Number one, to maintain sound doctrine and fervent prayer. The second coming is an incentive to maintain sound doctrine and fervent prayer because 1 Peter 4, 7 says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. So that's the first thing. The second thing, anticipate rewards for faithful living. Because in 2 Timothy 4, 8, it says this, In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. But not only to me, Paul said, but to all of those who have loved his appearing, who is waiting for the second coming. I'm one of those. I'm waiting. I'm looking. Thirdly, waiting for the second coming is an incentive to counteract present sufferings in the light of future glory. Because Romans 8.18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time aren't even worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Fourthly, it's an incentive to live pure lives. 1 John 3, 2 and 3. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him, that's a strong word, fixed on him, on his return, that he's coming back, purifies himself 
just as Jesus Christ is pure. The fifth incentive is to live in peace, 2 Peter 3, 13 and 14. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace. Spotless and blameless. Sixth, it's an incentive to serve the only living and true God, 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 through 10. You turn to God from idols, you Thessalonians, they're pagans, to serve a living and a true God, not the idols that you were worshiping, and to wait for him from heaven, to wait for his son from heaven. It's all through the scripture. He's coming back. It's, it's a waiting time right now. And finally, the seventh incentive is to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, of which we're bombarded all the time. These little devices that we carry around are little devices that lead us into ungodliness, tempt us with lust constantly, the lust to purchase things that we can't afford. Good grief. I'm, I'm old enough to remember when we used to look at catalogs for Christmas. Okay? Well, the catalog's right here, right now, and you don't have to wait till Christmas time because you can look at Amazon anytime and... Amazon will even help you pick out things that really tug at your heartstrings. Because if you bought something, you get 50 to 60 advertisements telling you, how about this? How about this? How about this? Oh my gosh. How long do we have to wait for the EMP? Yep. Yep. I haven't started praying for it, but I'm about to. Could you imagine? I mean, it's going to be tough, right? But we wouldn't have those devices that distraction would be taken away, along with a lot of other distractions and comforts, I might add. But waiting for the Lord teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, Titus 2, 11 through 13. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for that blessed hope and the appearing for the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Seven incentives that waiting for him, intentionally waiting for him, bring about in our lives or should bring about. Now back to verse 7. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets to the early and late rains. You see, he gives an illustration to help his people understand. And he uses a farmer. And just as a farmer must wait the allotted time in order to reap, so we must wait the allotted time which no man knows except him until he returns. It'd be more difficult for the farmer to be patient for the harvest if he were hungry. And it was certainly difficult for the oppressed to be patient until the coming of the Lord. And when we begin to experience persecution to a greater extent than we already are suffering persecution, it will be even more difficult for us to wait. So here's a tip, okay? Do it now. <laughs> Start intentionally waiting now why it's still easy. 
why the affluence is still here, why the comforts are still here and you can buy toilet paper. Do it now. Don't wait until the boom drops. Verse 8, you too be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. You too be patient. So that's the first prescription. Be patient. No matter what you're experiencing. Hey, listen, I know some of you have jobs that are dead-end jobs, and it's really hard to go to work. I know some of you have jobs that pay you quite well, but what you have to put up with to do that job, you're wondering if it's worth it. There's, there's difficulties that we face, relationship difficulties in our families, children, with our spouse possibly. Whatever you're going through, you're called to be patient. And that word patient there is toward people, the oppressors, not just situations. It's towards people. Now, the second prescription that I want to bring out to you is that you are to strengthen your heart or strengthen the inner man. You see it in the text where it says very clearly that's what we're to do. You too be patient, but also strengthen your hearts. Why? Because the coming of the Lord is near. 1 Thessalonians 3.13 says, So that God may establish your hearts, unblameable in holiness before our God and Father, at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with his saints. You say, well, why would you use that verse, Pastor? Because that says God does it. I know. 1 Peter 5.10 is like that too. And after you've suffered for a little while, Peter says, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So what's James talking about that we're supposed to strengthen our own hearts? God does it. Au contraire. In verse 8, James exhorts his readers to strengthen their inner man and not to let people who are oppressing them agitate them nor the circumstances that they're experiencing to cause them to become anxious. You must put iron into your hearts. And he's, he's admonishing the believers to strengthen their own hearts because the coming of the Lord is at hand. The need to look up. They need it to remember that this life is not all that there is. Look up, not around you. Look up at what's coming in the future. And that is not pie in the sky. By, by focusing or fixing your, your thoughts on the return of Jesus Christ, you will strengthen your heart. It works wonders in your heart. The phrase, is at hand, brings the idea of imminent return of Jesus Christ. Eminency. Eminent means at any moment. There's nothing that has to take place before he could return. And it has been that way since he left. He could have gone back at the ascension, come right back down. He chose not to, or the, the father chose not to. That's not the time frame that was allotted. It's been low many years now. But even at that, teaching us eminency, Philippians 4, 5 says, let your forbearing spirit, same, same message, right? Be patient. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. Why? Because the Lord's near. He's near. He doesn't count time like we count time. 
1 Peter 4, 7 says the end of all things is at hand. Oh, really? That was 2,000 years ago. 1 John 2, 18. Children, it is the last hour. Revelation 22, 20. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I'm coming quickly. I'm coming quickly. The only thing I can say to you about these things is that God's time is not our time. His ways are not our our ways at all. And I have just a personal experience with this really minuscule way because I journal and I journal prayer requests and some of my prayer requests that I've forgotten all about because they were 10, 12 years ago are just now being answered by God. I don't know if you've had that experience. But I'm telling you something, okay? His ways are not our ways. And I have learned in these few years that I've lived that he is, he's way longer in taking care of things than I am. I mean, I want to be changed now. I want to deal with this, this sin now and have it done out of my life completely. No, no. There's a battle that rages. And it just takes time, people. And it behooves us as believers to be patient with one another. Be patient with your husband. Be patient with your wife. Be patient with your children. Be like God. Be like God. Ephesians 5.1 says we're to imitate him. And be patient with one another. And if you, if you dare, look in the mirror. <laughs> and how patient is he with you? Right? With me. So these are, these are good admonitions here. So, imagine the comfort and encouragement that these readers would have received when contemplating the Lord's soon return. One man put it like this, Hope is the cement and truth the stone used to build a support that will not be moved when the winds of adversity and persecution hit in gale force. I like that a lot. Hope and truth. Be patient and strengthen your inner man. Now, rapidly, we're going to look at the two prohibitions, verses 9 through 12. And the first one, well, I'll give both of them are, the first one is don't complain, and the second prohibition is talk plainly. Talk plainly. Now, this complaining thing, boy, that is a habit that some of us have. And we shouldn't, not as believers. The verse says, Do not complain, brethren, against one another, that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. The word complain means to groan within oneself or to sigh. Oh, I am so convicted I can't keep preaching. I cannot keep Wow. The Lord does this to you every once in a while, doesn't he? My inward sighs come out sometimes. And those of you who know me well and have been around me, you've actually asked me, you okay? (laughs) And I will have sighed (laughs) maybe three or four times. And you heard it and you're saying, Pastor, you okay? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. (laughs) I'm fine. I'm just, you know, going through some stuff here. But this is an inward sigh. This complaining is inward. It's not external. We'll get to the external expression of this soon. But it's, it's within oneself. 
So complaining was something internal, not openly expressed. And James is going to deal with that whole element in verse 12, but the outward one. But here he's talking about an inner attitude, tumbling things over and over and over in your mind, causing yourself to sigh. Some of us live more in our head than we do in the world. He uses the term brethren again. It's the second time in this section. And he tells his readers to focus not on their complaints. Because the focus of their complaints, he was fearful, was against one another. And he didn't want that to happen. Do you remember what I read to you from our brother Victor in, uh, in uh, Russia? He's in the church in Moscow. Do you remember that letter I read to you? That this war in the Ukraine is beginning to divide the church. The church in Moscow, a church plant, which we supported Victor as one of the church planters that helped there, going gangbusters. They planted another church out of that church already. And a lot of young uh, professionals in that church getting saved, growing in faith and everything. And because of the war in the two sides, think Trump-Biden, okay? Because conservatives and liberals are there also. They're everywhere, right? And, and it's beginning to divide the church, and he asks for our prayers. And this is exactly what, what James was worried about, is that these wicked rich that were oppressing them, that this would then begin to cause them to fight against each other because they were stressed out over things, and they start snipping at each other. And then you lose the testimony of the church. That's exactly what he's talking about here. It's so easy when things are going badly to begin to grumble and look around at others and begin to adopt an attitude towards them of bitterness and resentment and thereby fracture relationships that really should be an encouragement to us in times of need. But look at the deterrent that James used to express to his readers the reason why they should refrain from such complaining. This is James coming at us again. (laughs) That you yourselves may not be judged. Whoa. Whatever happened to Romans 8.1? Well, it wasn't written yet. No, I can't can't say that. Romans 8.1, right? There is therefore now no condemnation. What's he talking about? Judged. Well, if you've been with us for any length of time, I've told you Christians will be judged. Just not in the sense of penalty. Just not in the sense of... um, of, of condemnation. Jesus Christ took all of our judgment upon himself and we're free. There is now no condemnation. But we will be judged according to our works in the body at the Bema Seat of Christ. All such attitudes will one day be judged. Jesus, another very convicting verse, says that we will be judged for every idle word that comes out of our mouth. Both the righteous and the unrighteous will stand before the Lord and there will be an accounting of things done in the body. For the believer, that judgment is not for condemnation. There is no condemnation. That was all taken care of by Jesus. Romans 14.10 tells us this. For we shall all, that's inclusive, right? All stand before the judgment seat of God. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all, again, 
appear before the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Timothy 4.8. In the future, there's laid up for me, Paul said, a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And I believe that that's referring to the judgment seat of Christ, the bema. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Now, there are layers of meaning in James' use of a picture like this. The first, of course, is to give backing to his exhortation for the believers not to grumble against one another, giving them a little motivation. But consider also the situation that they were in, the difficulties that they were facing due to their faith. Okay? They were suffering persecution because of their belief, and often from their own countrymen. Remember, he's writing to a predominantly Jewish uh, church made up of many Jews that had converted and we read over in Hebrews that they lost their livelihood and they lost their, their, their homes and their goods and they were to absorb that, the writer to Hebrews says. Right? So that's the people that James is addressing, that kind of people. And he says, consider what you're suffering and realize real soon judgment's coming. In fact, the judge is standing right at the door. This is but one more reference to the return of the Lord. There's no stronger deterrent to worldliness and all of its manifestations than a sincere, heart-gripping, deliberate belief in the Lord's return. I often think of Peter when he denied the Lord and a cock crowed three times and he was devastated because he called to mind what Jesus had said to him. And I imagine him looking at Jesus and Jesus catching his eye. Do you realize, people, someday we're going to look the Lord right in the face? How would you like to be engaged in an illicit activity when the rapture takes place? Can you imagine that? Think about that. Those are things to meditate on. This is what purifies us. This is what keeps us from doing things like that, whatever that is. Because you think he could come at any time. We don't, he could come right now. That'd be awesome. That'd be awesome. The nearness of that day is not just an impetus to look forward to the judgment of sinners. It's also a warning to examine our own behavior so that when one whose footsteps are nearing finally knocks on the door, we may be prepared to open For open one must, either for blessing or for judgment. Now to drive this home to his readers, James gives them two examples to follow. The prophets were witnesses, in verses 10 through 11. As an example, brethren of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we count those blessed who endured. And they did endure. Read the book of Jeremiah. What a book. The weeping prophet. Nobody listened to Jeremiah. He got no respect. They threw him in a pit. Let him to die. And then they pulled him out of the pit. And he prophesied again. They still didn't listen to him. Amazing. All you got to do is read Hebrews 11, 32 through 40. Hebrews 11, 32 through 40. And you can see all the testimony of the prophets. And then remember 12.1, which says, Therefore, 
pointing back to Hebrews 11, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, not bodiless spirits hovering around us, you know, like, is mom still watching me? That's not what that verse is talking about. It's referring us back to those, those witnesses of the Old Testament that endured. Witnesses surrounding us, the prophets and the Old Testament saints just discussed in Hebrews 11, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. Then he goes to Job, verse 11. And he says, not only the prophets are a witness for us, but Job. He says, you've heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Now, nobody here wants to go through what Job went through. Job really suffered. But James wanted them to take the long view, just like Job had to. Job didn't know. He wasn't informed of what we're informed of in the first verses of Job. We read the devil came before God. And God challenged him to take a look at his servant Job. And the devil said, he's doing that because you're blessing him. Health, wealth, and prosperity, man. Job's got it all. That's why he's worshiping you. God said, oh no, that's not true. And the devil says, well, I'm going to go after him. God said, you can go after him all the way up to his flesh. Don't, don't kill him. And he did. And the whole story of Job and his friends trying to encourage him, which weren't an encouragement at all, right? But Job did not fail God, even when his own wife told him, oh, just curse God and live. Thanks, honey. In the end, Job received back all that he had lost. In fact, God doubled it all. God doubled it all. But even more important than the material aspect of that story, and this is often lost, is the spiritual aspect. Why? Because we're earthy. We're people of the earth. And we're just like those people that follow Jesus to eat the bread that he was making, right? And we totally miss the fact that he's Messiah. Listen to this. Job discovered God in a way that he never would have before he endured those trials. And by his own testimony, he said, yes, I've heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now, now, after I've suffered everything I've suffered, my eye sees thee, and therefore I retract everything that I've said. Remember, he kind of banters back and forth with God. I retract everything I said, and I repent in dust and ashes. That's what suffering brings about. That's what enduring suffering brings brings about. So the first thing not to do, the first prohibition is stop complaining. Stop complaining. Endure. Secondly, talk plainly. And this is in 512. You can see it right there. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no. So that, purpose clause, so that you may not fall under judgment. Above all, marks it to be supreme concern. And here it goes out to the outward. 
He had the inner sign and the growing under the load of the oppression. This is the outward display of taking an oath or swearing. And it shows their inability to focus on the sovereignty of God in their circumstances. And you say, where are you getting that from? Well, from this, this verse right here. It says it really clear. Let me explain to you, okay? You need a little bit of a cultural background. It says, don't swear. And you're thinking, well, yeah, we're not, we're not to swear. No, you don't understand. It's not talking about that. It's talking about taking oaths. Oaths were an everyday part of life for the Jews at that time. And at that time, the religious Jews depended on the Jewish Mishnah, which was an early collection of Jewish writing that the rabbis wrote about the law of Moses. It wasn't the law of Moses. And they said this is a proper interpretation and a course of action that you need to take concerning Mosaic law. But it wasn't Mosaic law. It was like a commentary. In fact, the Mishnah was instrumental then in forming the Talmud, which was what the Pharisees used to be Pharisees. Again, removed from the law itself and was an interpretation. In the Mishnah, there was an entire section devoted specifically to oaths. And included in that section was a distinction made between swearing by the name of God, which was binding. If you brought God into it, boom, that was, that was sealing the deal. That was binding. But you could swear, not by the name of God, by anything else, and that wasn't binding. And Jews used it all the time to bolster their position, but it wasn't binding. The trick was to use the oath to back up a statement, gave weight to the statement, but it wasn't binding. So they'd say, I swear by heaven and earth, these figs are freshly picked. And they're like six days old, ready to rot. Or in the case of appearing in court, using an oath would give weight to a statement, but it would not be binding unless the name of God was used. And this is what James is talking about in 5.12. And what his brother Jesus addressed. He talked about this in Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew 23. Same thing, using these oaths. He said, don't do that. It's not right. Because the whole idea, a true believer should not have to use an oath to strengthen what he's saying. To prove what he's saying is true. He doesn't have to swear on his mother's grave. I swear on my firstborn child, whatever you're going to swear on. Clement of Alexandria said, quote, A Christian should maintain a life calculated to inspire confidence toward those without, so that an oath may not even be asked. I don't have to give an oath. He believed that it was a dishonor for a Christian to be placed under an oath. James says very clearly then, with that background, you can understand this statement maybe more clear. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. Don't play the tricks with your words and oaths. Should be clear, unambiguous speech. Today we'd say, no spin. He's a straight talker. He's a stand-up guy. What he says he means, and he means what he says. And then he goes back to the motivation again. James is hard. I told you, I, when I see James in heaven, I'm going to run. <laughs> He's scary. He uses judgment. He says, that you may not fall under judgment. <laughs> James, cut us some slack. I mean, you encourage us a little bit, and then bam, 
You come back hard at us. This is the second time James warns believers about judgment. And here it's a real intent behind James' words to bring his readers back to the reality of whom they need to keep in focus. You're dealing with God. Now, I told you already, when I'm done with James, I want to do some character studies from the Old Testament, some key figures, before we get into foundations where we do Genesis 1 through 11. That's my track for the next, until Jesus comes back. I don't know. But I'm really tempted, I'm really drawn to the fear of God, and I don't know where I'm going to fit that in. We don't have a fear of God anymore. And this country is just really, really, really pushing us away from any fear of God whatsoever. You lose the fear of God, you've lost everything. You can pray for me on that, okay? When will I preach on the fear of God? Because it's not going to be just one sermon if I get into it. But he says that you may not fall under judgment. Keep your focus on who you're dealing with. It's not those surrounding them. Don't worry about those oppressors. God will take care of them. Because he's judge. And James wants them to be able to stand clear of judgment, unhampered by the persecution that they may be facing, untainted by the world. And the world system was ever-present and ready at every turn to lead them into worldly responses to their situation, just like we are today. He says, don't quarrel and fight with one another or speak evil of one another. Don't make plans without God. Don't love riches rather than God. James wanted them to look to the soon return of the Lord as a deterrent to all that temptation that the world could throw at them. And in doing that, they would certainly affirm that they were indeed true, genuine believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they'd shine. They'd shine. Beloved, now we are, present tense, now we are children of God. And it has not yet appeared as yet, future, what we will be, future, but we know at this present time that when he appears, we will be future, just as he is. And everyone who is a believer, who has this hope fixed, fixed intentionally on him, purifies himself just as he is pure. So as we wait for the Lord's return, something that's rather like an operating system that works in the background. We all have computers, right? I don't think any of us even think, except for Curtis, think about operating systems anymore. Maybe Aaron, too. Operating systems. They're what makes our computer function. We don't think about that anymore. But there's this operating system that works in the background of everything that we do on our computer, and it's always operating. Am I right, Curtis? Yes, okay. That's the way we should be, that this this craving and fixed attention on the return of the Lord is just always in the background, always operating, always present. And the Spirit of God can raise it up when we need it, when we face a temptation to complain against one another or become impatient or to become anxious. This operating system that's always operating, having our minds fixed on his soon return, comes up and we go, oh yeah, this, this. 
It's just momentary, light affliction in view of the weight of glory that's to be revealed. You see, that's the way we need to be. And therefore, we should wait patiently. And we should be intentional about strengthening our inner person. And we shouldn't fall into temptation to always be complaining against one another. And, and we should trust in the sovereignty of God and let our speech be free of spin. Speak plainly. And that's James' exhortation. Now, next we're going to get into some really interesting things in verse 13 all the way to 19 and verse 20 because we get into anointing with oil and praying for sinners and all sorts of stuff. But that's next week. So let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you and we we confess James is hard to read because he puts his finger on many of the things that we suffer from, many of the things that we are engaged in, and we ask your forgiveness. We understand that in Christ there is no condemnation, and so therefore even the sins that we are committing have already been covered by the blood of Christ, but we need to acknowledge that we failed you again in sinning. And Father, we pray that you would work patience into our hearts, one of the fruit of the Spirit, that we would wait with joyful hope, anticipating his return, and that that would temper everything and our outlook on life. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.